Good morning, good afternoon, good day, wherever you are in the world listening to my voice and this podcast, which is hosted on the C-Suite Radio Network. But also, you can pick it up on Apple, Google Play, Spotify. I'm so happy to be on Spotify. What can I tell you? And today, we are blessed to have Eliza Van Court. She, I got to tell you guys, the pre-meetings that we had together, as well as this <laughs> meeting here, are going to be off the chain. <laughs> Because she's not only just dynamic, she's funny. She has spent a lot of her life listening and reflecting and learning, both from the things she did well, as well as the things that some people might call mistakes. And as you know, if you listen to me before or you are have worked with me before, you know I say none of them are mistakes. They are opportunities for us to figure out how to do better the next time. Mm-hmm. My podcast is called Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. And the point of it is, is that we will learn together how to close the gap from where we are today to where we want to be tomorrow. And with that, hello, Eliza! I'm so happy to be here. We had such a fun time talking. I, I worry we're never going to actually turn on the, the recording <laughs> beforehand, but I'm just so happy to be here with you. I'm really excited. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to make sure everybody hears that you've got a new book coming out. It's called A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard. And it's coming out. The full book is May 11th, but you've got it for pre-sale, right? Yes, it is on sale anywhere books are sold right now. All right. All right. (laughs) Um, And guys, I know that at the end of this, you are going to be rushing to her website to get this. And, you know, it's a good read. It's a good read filled with great stories and lessons for you. So with that, tell us something about you that very few people know. Uh, (laughs) My Oprah moment here. (laughs) There's a lot. I'm going down the list. Um, Well, actually, I do have this very weird, quirky thing, which is that I, and people think I'm nuts when I say this. They think that's not possible. It is true, everyone. It's true. Don't go near me if you have electronics, because I can get in the vicinity of electronics and break them. I will give you, like, for real, for real. I'll give you an example. So I was dating this guy and we were quite serious. So we would, we started to go on vacation together and he had, you know, you would get those little digital cards to get into your hotel room. Yeah. And I said, don't give it to me because I'll, I'll neutralize it. It'll stop working. And he was like, I don't believe in that stuff. And I said, really, trust me, you don't want to give this to me. And by the end of the trip, he was like, don't touch that thing. <laughs> I don't want to have to go back for the fourth time and get a new one. <laughs> so maybe I'm part alien. I don't know. But if there's a Terminator apocalypse, put me on the front lines and I'll kill all the Terminators. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, <laughs> so we don't need guns and bombs. We got you. <laughs> That's right. No, it's going to be a nonviolent solution to a very serious problem. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So, you know, it's just for the listeners here, part of where you, you know, you came from was the theater. And so tell us a little bit about that. And then how did you get into diversity and equity and inclusion work? How how did that transition happen? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I was raised in a family that there was a real feeling of service. Mm -hmm. And my family was not in any kind of corporate world. My father was the director of planning development and did a lot of urban planning to try to help revitalize neighborhoods. My stepmother did similar things, giving low-income people from uh, Puerto Rico and New York alone through this really wonderful program. So I kind of grew up with this idea that that is 
the only way you live. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the first thing. But when I was a little girl, I, I had a lot of trauma, actually. And so and I was very scared about the world because of it. My mother was paranoid, schizophrenic, and not so great things happened. So the theater for me, you know, I spent a lot of years kind of hiding behind my hair. I had this long curtain of hair and I would hide from the world. And the theater for me was like, I could play make-believe. Oh. I could be someone I wasn't and just sort of forget me. And I needed that at that time. And at the same time, it had this added effect of, I don't have to hide anymore, you know? So I still was hiding a lot of myself because I think young women get certain messages, but it was the first step for me. But then I ended up going to, we're from a very academic town, Ithaca, New York, and my parents are quite academic. So there was an expectation you really wouldn't go into the arts. So I ended up going to political science Mm -hmm. for undergrad. And I had a big focus on what at the time was called women's studies. Now it's gender studies. And I was fortunate enough to take every class on African-American studies I could. Um, One of them, my favorite, was with Dr. Manning Maribel. It was amazing. And I just really have always cared about that, but I never really got it. Okay. And then I think when I really started to get it in a deep way was when something personal happened, which I'm happy to share if you don't want me to, but I'm rambling on. So I think I'll no, ask no, 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 no. I think it's interesting how people get into it because it gives us some character about you. Yeah, yeah. So please share well, your story if you don't mind. Okay, no, no problem. So I have a very dear friend who allows me to say her name. So her name is Kim Munson Burke, and she adopted one child and has a biological child. One of her children is black and one of her children is white. Mm -hmm. And then I have another dear friend who lives behind me who has a white child and an Indian child, Mm -hmm. very dark skinned Indian girl, which is worse if you are darker skinned. And I have been educated on this quite a bit. So watching these young women are my, they're my babies and they would spend so much time in my house and watching what they went through, just the difference. And they were so well behaved. There was no behavioral difference. There was the, the only difference was race. And the story that really stuck with me the most, and that's when I started thinking, well, you know, I have all this theater background and I've been doing a lot of transformative theater work. I can use my political science background and combine it with a really innovative approach, was the story that Kim told me, which is in my book, so I also have permission to tell it, where she told Marana to go to school because Marana was in advanced math. Okay. And she said, make sure you get a pass. Mm-hmm. And so Marana went to the front desk and Kim watched. And Kim is a lioness. So don't mess with Kim. Marana, she watches Marana, walked in the uh, office, was refused to pass. It was pretty sure. She then watched as she went to stand in line past the hall monitor. She watched as the hall monitor waved through like five little white girls It was Marana's turn. She was turned away. They didn't believe she was in accelerated math. She watched Marana stand there with her big backpack in the middle of the lobby. And Kim flew in the school, asked what happened. And she said, you know, they wouldn't give me a pass. They said, I didn't need one because everybody can just walk through. So she walks in. She says, I want to talk to the principal. And the principal walks out and said, what? Why? You know, she said, why didn't you give her a pass? And they said, because she doesn't need one. And then she pulled the hell monitor in. And she said, why didn't you let my daughter through? And he said, she needs a pass. And she looked at him and she looked at the whole room and she said, you know, I watched you let several little white girls go through before my daughter went through. And I think you should examine that. And to everyone in the everyone else in this room, when this little girl 
asks for a pass, you will give her one because clearly she needs one. Yeah. And the metaphor for me is throughout, and I get choked up because I love I love these kids, but is that throughout their lives, they did everything right. Yeah. They followed all the rules. They went above and beyond. The white kids didn't ask for a pass. Right. They did everything and beyond and yet they are still not getting past the hall monitor. Yeah. They are still getting thwarted. And that was the beginning of an awakening for me about my own internalized racism and a passion because I started to see things differently. And once you see it, I say it's like the matrix. Yeah, you cannot, you're on the Ebenezer man. Like you cannot plug back in. You just can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you're right. And I love the, I love the metaphor of the hall pass. Where in life do you need hall passes just Mm -hmm. to, you know, to get in the door, to get past the frame, to whatever. And and those people who don't think you need them versus those people who are always there asking for your hall pass. And that, you know, some people don't need a hall pass and some people can have asked for it and not get it. They can, you know, they can, you know, even if you do above and beyond, mm-hmm. you are still thwarted at every turn. And, yeah. and, and, and I watched it again and again and again and again. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and most of your work that you do is in academia, correct? A lot of it. I'm transitioning. I just did something at Microsoft. So I'm transitioning. Oh, because, good. Yeah, which is exciting. I, a lot of academia shut down because of the pandemic. Yeah. So I had to do a very, very fast pivot. <laughs> Very fast pivot. And so I, I actually lost a year's worth of work in one week. Mm. So it was time for pivot, pivot, pivot. And it is a different experience for sure. But I've also been with a lot of groups that are, you know, women of color or uh, women of all races or people of color or different kind of groups that are supporting certain targeted groups. So right. I'm not really dealing with the stuff that I've heard from other people quite as much because these right. are people kind of looking for support. Right, right, right. So you've been doing this for a little while and you're you're in it. And you also, as Brene Brown says, you know, being in the arena of it, right? Mm-hmm. You're in the arena and then you're in the balcony. Mm-hmm. So what do you see is, why is it that we're at 60 some odd years now doing mm-hmm. diversity, equity and inclusion? I just saw yeah. a report from, I believe it's McKenzie, who says that it will take us another 257 years before mm-hmm. women find equity in the workplace. Mm-hmm. When you look at the pipeline and the work of the pipeline, et cetera, you, we see the broken rung syndrome. And yet, you know, a few get through and they're always the mm-hmm. one, you know, they, we, we live by exception, right? Oh, well, mm-hmm. she did it. So there's something wrong with you versus right. the system, right? Exactly. But we're now at an inflection point. As you look in your crystal ball to the future and you talk to other people in diversity, equity and inclusion, what, what exactly is the next level? There are several issues here. I mean, I think the first thing is I've noticed that when I go in and I do talks on women's empowerment or Mm -hmm. communication, you know, often people say, oh, I didn't know this was going to be a talk about race and women. I'm like, no, it's just that we all don't talk the same. So, So therefore, I talk about everyone and you're used to you being centralized white man. And so... Those things, though, are, are, are pretty well received okay. and because they're positive and they're like, this is what you can do to empower yourself. This is how you can have better speech. The DEI work I do is ends on a positive note, but it is not I am not taking care of the feelings of the white people okay. uh, in the room. I, and I think I hear a lot of people who I work with who are not I have not seen this quite as effective. And I know a lot of very effective people 
who do a lot of time catering to whiteness and catering to white fragility and catering to our feelings. And the truth is like, we are quite fragile. <laughs> so if you do that, you're not gonna get a lot done. So I think people just by nature, A, don't wanna be uncomfortable, mm -hmm. and B, they want to identify as good. And, and Dr. Dolly Chug, who's a friend of mine and has a wonderful TED talk about being goodish. You know, there is, as long as we want people to leave things with DEI, feeling full of joy and how good they are. We're not going to learn anything because it is a sick and damaged society that we're in right now. And where one entire portion of the population is privileged over another. And it doesn't feel good if you really explore that. It feels bad. So I try to leave people feeling hopeful mm -hmm. and with tools that are concrete. And I think that uplifts them. But I think people, when you really dive into the stuff, it's not happy. It's it's, it's awful in many cases. So I think that that's why it's so darn ineffective. One of the things I'm working on is I believe HR is one of the culprits in what's kept us from not doing really well. I mean, I really HR sucks. I agree. Yeah. And it is their job, you know, as it's been defined, to protect bad managers from yes. victims of all kinds yes. of things. Yes. Kinds of things. So the Meghan Markle thing was, you know, the thing that got me was I went to HR and they couldn't even give me the name of somebody for mental health. Really? Really? Yeah. You know, because you're not part of the institute. What? What the yeah. frick is that about? It's largely white women. And white women do have this whole training of victimization, which causes us to victim put ourselves in the victim role, which, of course, doesn't allow us to examine anything or really, you know, and we're also afraid of conflict and all of those things. To, and then there's the racism and you put those things together and we just do such a dis I have seen that we just do a terrible disservice to women, our sisters of color. I mean, just terrible. Well, it's not even I, that. I, I mean, you know, HR owns the comp system. So if we're saying it's going to take 257 years for women to have equity and pay, you are perpetuating exactly what's happening here. And I don't understand mm -hmm. how you're shooting yourself in the foot. That That's the thing that I, I'm like, you don't have to do it for me. Do it for right. yourself. You yeah. should not accept 257 years. That just is beyond, how do you get that out of your mouth? One thing I didn't talk about here, which I find really fascinating, I talk about my book is my friend, Dr. Nia Nunn, who I would love to introduce you to. She's absolutely brilliant. And she she teaches young kids, mostly white kids, at Ithaca College how to advocate for kids with disabilities, but a lot of her thing is the intersection of that and race. And she calls the process of white people discovering race, discovering letters. She says it's like a little kid who you're driving in a car and you're like, the kid's like all, all these squiggles around them, they have no idea they have any meaning whatsoever. And then one day they're like, oh, A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. And they like walk up to their parents and like, C. And the parents are like, yes, we have read forever. And like, white, you know, white people will go up to their black friends and be like, do you know there's racism? And their black friends are like, ah, you are seeing. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, I have read for quite some time now since I was actually born. But like, there's this, but you can't unsee it. Yeah. Once you can read, it's a shock that what you were looking at and thought was meaningless was just a little drawing has a meaning to it. And I think that the problem is that the process of discovering letters is painful. Yeah. And so I think most people cannot go through it because unless you have someone in your life who you love, who just is in your face all the time. And, and that is the bigger why that causes you to go over. 
That's right. Totally. Totally agree with that. Yeah, oh, you have man. to. That's I, I gotta know. think that one because I'm I'm on a mission here to I haven't quite figured it out yet because I'm too in your face a little bit. Because I, I, I really think we have to shake HR up because they are the ones who hold the system in together. They are the ones who design the system and every system they design is a replication of the old. It's it literally is Sarah Pellin's lipstick with a pig. You know, today's got on red lipstick, tomorrow's got on orange. You know, it's a blue suit tomorrow, it's a red suit the next day, it's khakis the third day. But it is still the same thing being recreated over and over and over and over again. And we have yeah. to break the system before anybody's going to be able to hold to make a change. Tema Okin and Kenneth Jones, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they mm-hmm. they do really wonderful work. And they one of the things they talk about in dismantling racism and white supremacy is this idea of not expecting comfort. Like that that HR is there, like everybody's gonna feel good all the time. But the problem is if everybody feels good, that means you're not changing anything. Right. Right. You know, we don't change when we feel good. Right. Yeah. And and like if the system is like favoring whiteness, then that means if you are pushing up against it, you are not letting someone feel good. Mm-hmm. And then it's your fault. Mm-hmm. And so it, like I think actually it, inviting uncomfortable conversations in the workplace is the first step in many ways to dismantling white supremacy, because like or else you have the like, oh so hard for me that I just oppressed you. And then we have to have that whole cycle start. So I think that's one of the biggest things HR does is they're like, no, 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 but that wasn't nice. And it's like, yeah, but her racism wasn't nice or his sexism wasn't nice. And they did it first. But that's not what we meant. That's not what we meant. Right. You know, I, I didn't understand that. Oh, that's that wasn't their intention. And I always say that that doesn't really matter. It's all about impact. I don't really care what their intention was. Right, right. I know how it felt and how it impacted me. Yeah. Okay. So how would I know if I were somebody in corporate and I'm trying to think about who to bring in my organization? This thing, I'm fascinated by this thing you said of tending to white feelings, Mm -hmm. not tending to them. These white feelings. How would I know if I were looking to say, wait a minute, this, this program is really only going to identify shame, blame embarrassment, guilt. And it's mm-hmm. not really going to move anybody to the next level. It's not going to get us to skill building, changing, yes. which is yes. one of the things I love about your your the work you do in claiming space because it's mm-hmm. actually skill building. Yes. So, so when I'm looking at these programs, how do I know? Mm-hmm. How do I discern what's right? What's going to work? I think it's twofold. The first thing is, and I'm going to be speaking to white people here because I think it's a different experience with people of color. But if you are white and you feel slightly uncomfortable when you hear what's going to happen and maybe how the, you know, then that's probably a good sign because it's in the race, but, you know, racial discrimination is by nature uncomfortable. So therefore that means the person's really addressing it. The second thing is if it's just a lot of talking or exploring your own feelings I don't think that's effective. Because of my theatrical background Mm -hmm. and the intersection I have with political science, I don't go in there and say, these are all these problems and wouldn't it be lovely if we get better and, you know, feel your feelings. I say like, okay, so first we're going to analyze ourselves internally, but then we're going to look at external communication and literally how do you move your body in space? Mm -hmm. How do you use your voice? What kind of space are you taking up in a room? Mm -hmm. And... If people are not, and I'm not saying my way is the only way, but if somebody's not offering concrete steps and 
action that people can can take and it's just a lot of talking and feelings about people's feelings, then I say, nope, look for somebody who's going to actually do concrete steps that go beyond, oh, I see now the world is racist and I acknowledge it. And now so I this feel awareness good. training that is often played up of we just, you know, first step is create awareness. First step is exactly correct. It is a first step. Mm -hmm. And if someone comes in and wants a lot of money for a first step, I think you should find someone who gives them step two and three. <laughs> <laughs> One step is, does not a solution make? Like, it's kind of like for any other problem, right? We wouldn't go in and say, like, let's say there's a huge plumbing problem and the plumbing water's going everywhere. You would be like, hey, I'm going to hire a plumber who comes in and is like, there's water. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's like, excellent. I feel so much better that there's water. Let's just keep living yeah, with this water. Yeah, yeah. You got a leak. See you, you later. Know. How do we care of this water? Like that's step one. And yeah. now let's go. And so I don't understand. It's hard for me to understand that when it comes to targeted groups, everyone's like, well, we talked about that it exists. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Congratulations. What's next? And and now we're surprised when things fall apart, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's great because, you know, oftentimes it's senior management is making a decision on bringing in a group that's going to help them. Mm -hmm. And so you and I have had conversations offline. Many of you who know me personally know that I'm not a fan necessarily of D, this work because I, I still say it's 60 years. We haven't seen substantive change and we're still shocked and hard, horrid at what's going on. But also the work can be very damaging in that people are pouring out their time, their energy, their personal soul. You know, we're talking about black fatigue now. And I don't think it's just black fatigue. I think it's any marginalized group has got to be fatigued and having to tell their story over and over and over and mm -hmm. over again and mm -hmm. not see anything happen. Because in telling my story, I want to see change. I want to see you're going to be changed. You're going to try, et cetera. Mm -hmm. so, so there's that side of, okay, I'm now woke. But what do you do or, or have you seen programs in which Black women, marginalized, LBGQT community, trans community that can help us or help them let go of some of the things that have been holding them back? Mm -hmm. So those things that cause them not to have a voice because they're mm -hmm. trying to be perfect in a mm -hmm. world that is imperfect. And my belief right. is, is that you can't, you know, no system breaks until both sides of the system decide to do something different. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's, again, two things that I would say there. The first thing is, I mean, I go back to the onus should never be on people of color to solve racism because they're not being racist toward themselves. Right. So, you know, it really is on white people to fix this as we are the problem. I mean, just mm -hmm. straight up. And so I do think a lot of the programs need to address whiteness directly and it shouldn't be a, you know, we're all feeling feelings here. It should be, you know, we, this is the problem. But there are also things that people can do that are actionable steps in terms of how they communicate, which can help them get power when they need it, seed power when they need to, and basically figure out how they're going to interact in a situation so they can optimize the way in which they're received in their communication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I, I work with people on that quite a bit because- So tell me, so give us some examples. What would you tell a Black woman who has been dubbed the angry Black woman? Right. 
Well, I mean, that first of all, that's a real tough one because I think a black woman can basically do nothing and be dubbed the angry black woman. You know, so, <laughs> Sometimes. So, so it's so in some ways I would say, I, you know, I don't ever want to say I can do more than I can. I think you can do everything right and still be dubbed the angry black woman. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to preface it by that. But there are things called high and low playing behaviors, for example. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what happens is when we're upset, we throw words around that people can then use against us and use as evidence that we are bad. So the, it, the reaction usually goes, first person says something yucky, person A says something yucky. So person B says, hey, I didn't like that you said that, that wasn't cool. Person A said, you're overreacting and you hurt my feelings, I feel so sad inside. Person B goes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Person A goes, that's okay. And then person A walks away feeling completely vindicated, having learned nothing. And person B goes away feeling angry and maybe a little crazy. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. like rinse and repeat cycle. Yes. Yeah. So what you want to do is interrupt that cycle. Mm-hmm. And part of how you can do that is by not giving people words to use against you, but instead shutting people down with behavior. Oh, so how does that happen? Yeah, well, I have something called high and low playing behaviors. I did not. It was developed by a woman from Stanford, Deborah Grunfield, who's amazing. I've kind of taken what she's done. She's done and run with it. But I do want to credit her because it's her fundamental idea. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it's the idea that there are certain physical behaviors, such as taking up a lot of space with your body, not moving your head. Not moving your head is a gigantic power move. Mm-hmm. Un- looking at someone without blinking, not mm-hmm. smiling. Mm-hmm. All of these things are high playing behavior, fluid mm-hmm. body body movements. Mm-hmm. A low playing would be, you know, smiling a lot. She calls it the badge of appeasement, which is super creepy. You know, jerky hand movements close to your face. Not when you're making a demand of someone or you're talking, don't look at them, like kind of look away. But if they're talking to you, you are glued onto them. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing high, you don't even need to look at anyone because, you know, why, why should you? If they're talking to you, you have better things to do. Mm-hmm. So it's like, so what you can do is when you go in a room there, we all put ourselves on a safety scale. Mm-hmm. On one end is total dire mortal danger physically. The other is complete and utter emotional safety. Right. Very rarely do we spend time on either of these extremes, although people of color, unfortunately, sometimes do go into dire physical safety, but it's not where we spend every moment of our life for anyone, unless you're, mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. you know, being tortured every day. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do is walk in the room and place yourself on that scale mindfully rather than unconsciously. Okay. So you walk in, you go, oh, okay. I'm feeling unsafe emotionally here. Then you try to pinpoint, so what is it? Because so much of the time we're just going, 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 and we're just kind of being reactive. So then you say, oh, that's because Chad is here. And Chad is always incredibly rude and demeaning to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you think, okay, so what does Chad do? Let's say what Chad does is he makes jokes that are not funny. And he thinks they're hilarious and they're incredibly demeaning. Today, you know, our job as women, we're taught to take care of men and take Mm -hmm. care of their feelings in our Mm -hmm. communication. Mm -hmm. Today, when he makes a joke, I am not going to make him feel okay about the joke by laughing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to drop my smile. I'm going to not move my head. And I'm going to say simply this, what do you mean? And then let him be uncomfortable and have to explain the joke, which is never a joke. It's always a microaggression. And then you just keep asking questions with very high playing behavior, but he can't say, she said this to me because your words are unimpunable. So there are ways in which you can actually use your body to say, you need to stop 
but they can never actually go after you for the words because that's usually how people um, pathologize people and do all the, you know, fiery Latina, angry black woman, crazy Asian, all those horrible, you know, emotional mm-hmm. white women, all those kind of stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting because none of this is ever taught anywhere, right? And, and, and to even find the information is pretty hard mm-hmm. um, to find the information in general. And so when I was asking about programs that people can really like bring in, those kinds of behaviors, those kinds of programs are things I think we need to have more conversations around. It's not mm-hmm. just about, you know, helping, you know, high level men or high, yes, mostly men <laughs> yeah, um, right. or even high level women who might be in, at the top of the organization. But it's also how do you handle these little microaggressions that you have to live with the chads who have mm-hmm. these funny jokes? that are never really funny, these mm-hmm. approaches that people have. I, I used to say all the time, I always knew when people actually saw me when I moved from one company to another is because six months into it, somebody would look at me and they'd go, you know, you're really short. And it, it was that moment, it was that time that I knew that they were wow. now in relationship with me because mm-hmm. the bigness of my personality, the strength of my energy was now mm-hmm. being neutralized and they felt comfortable to let slip certain things that they may have been thinking, but now they could actually say it to me in the process. And I think I did not know about these high-low behaviors that you were talking about, but somehow they, you know, I'm going to be this way. I'm going to have to figure it out, work through that, that, that way of going to it. So just like, would a person have to take up like theater or acting to, to figure this stuff out? I mean, it seems like we should be teaching this, but What's going Absolutely on? not. Absolutely not. I when I do seminars, one of the things I do or talks, I always say to people, please, please reach out to me on LinkedIn afterwards if you want to. And often four to five people reach out. Yeah. And and I say, you know, just I just want to know if you try these things and how it works. And if I do seminars, usually it's like 90% of them reach out. And I get these wonderful messages from people who are in STEM, you know, who you wouldn't, you know, who are not, who are the furthest from actors or who are, you know, in business or whatever now recently saying, oh, I tried this thing yesterday. It worked so well. I couldn't believe it. My boss was doing this. And then I did, I didn't move my head and I shut them down and blah, blah, blah. And it's really, or, you know, I also teach people the use of silence verbally, which oh, silence? Ooh, wait a minute. Yeah. Oh, back, back up on that one. Silence. <laughs> I mean, silence is considered weakness. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> silence is so powerful. It's my favorite. <laughs> okay, tell us more. Tell us more. So one of the things in our communication we fear is silence. We feel like we have to fill space. Now, yeah. if you watch people who are very powerful, they do pause more. Watch, if you really want to see a great example of this, watch Oprah, old clips of Oprah, and watch Oprah now and see how she pauses. But silence is a way of saying, and you can do it for two reasons. One is offensively, which is to make a point, or defensively to help you when you are really in trouble and you don't know what you're going to say. So okay. it's, a, it's the only tool that works both ways. Okay. But what you can do with silence, it's a way of saying, I am so powerful that you are going to sit here quietly and wait while wow. I and so for example and I actually show this in my TEDx you know I can walk up to you and I can say you know Denise I need to tell you something you're fired and that's unpleasant right because you don't want to be fired right but if I walk up to you and I say Denise I need to tell you something you're fired 
Just Ooh. that little second is so Ooh. much worse. Now, the thing is, people fear. They think, well, what if I pause in the wrong place? You can pause anywhere. I can say, Denise, I need to tell you. Or I can say, Denise, I need to tell you. So there's no place as long as I high play it. As yeah. long as I keep eye contact, I will basically say, you will listen to me now. Yeah. And yeah. so it's a very powerful technique. And the other way we can use it is when someone makes a quote joke and we say nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So going okay. back to what you were saying, when mm-hmm. Chad makes that joke, you simply mm-hmm. just kind of go nothing. So nothing. there's no, there's dead air for it to hit and it just right. falls flat. And then the room just fills up with this <gasps> yeah. kind of feeling. Exactly. And, and, you know, the, what do you mean question is amazing. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And even with the lift, because, you know, they, there's people out there say women shouldn't have the lift in their voice. So they, you know, oh, I'm not sure. Talk. It, yeah, 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 yeah. But even when you said it just a minute ago, what do you mean? There's a the right. little bit of a lift, but it's it's almost like a what if I understand the high low player, it's playing high low behaviors. It's like using the word in a way that or the phrase in a way that still keeps me approachable but it also keeps me dominant. Well, I mean, it can do a lot of things. It can keep you approachable and dominant, but it can also just shut someone down. It can tell someone, no, 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 not today. You're not doing that. Mm -hmm. I'm not accepting that from Mm -hmm. you. But you can also, I do want to say that people hear high and low and they think, oh, low is bad. Mm -hmm. And I do want to be really clear that actually there are times that you should play low. (laughs) So it's not... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so, oh, you know, I got to ask, when? <laughs> what? <laughs> Trust me, it would never occur to me. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so, well, if you're in an extreme power imbalance with somebody okay. where you are way ahead of them on the privilege pyramid and they are way lower. So an example I use is I have mentees that I work with. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, they are especially if they're like a young woman of color and I'm a white woman and we're having a conversation, I am not going to high play her. That is like saying I have control over you and I'm going to dominate you and you, I'm your boss and you will listen to me. I'm going to actually play a little low okay. so that I can raise her up. You can actually gain social capital just in, in you know, trust simply by playing a little low so that you raise up the other person. So for example, I will smile a lot, which is low. Constant smiling is low. And you know, I will not sit there without my head moving. I'll move my head around and I might glance away a bit okay. because I'm saying, listen, you know, you're I'm not I'm I'm not above you. Okay. I just want, I say that with my body language. So okay. there are times where you don't want to play too too high. Great. And this is, you know, I can't believe we're at the end now, but I because I, I want to, I, I mean, there's like 15 questions I want to ask about, you know, in terms of, you know, when do you know, how do you do it? And I mean, some of the things that you said, you know, I use with my clients in terms of if then statements, you know, if yes. Chad is going to do this, because you know, he's going to do it because we're all creatures of habit, right? That's right. Then you do this here. And so there's a preparatory piece in terms of being able to be, set yourself up so that you're 
consciously doing this till at, at least till it's a habit. And then, you know, that habit will kick in and it becomes a seamless way of getting to it. And so mm-hmm. developing those habits and understanding that is great. So now I have to ask, so if I go get the book, am I going to get these secrets? Absolutely. <laughs> it's got five chapters, five, five sections, five ways to claim space. First entire part is just all this. Yeah. One fifth of the book is just this. Oh my God. That's amazing. That's amazing. So if people want to connect with you on it and have more conversations about this, or just get to know you and the work that you've done, what's the best way for them to do it? The first thing is please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. I truly love hearing from people. If you ask me a question, I will answer it. It might take a little while, but I promise I will get to it. You can actually, if you are not a LinkedIn person, you can act, a lot of people have actually friended me on Facebook and we've gotten to know each other and Twitter is anemic and so is Instagram, but you can you can go on those. And then the fin- final thing is, which is probably the most important and it's you can go and join my community of space claimers and I send out little updates to people and also just little tips and tricks and things like that, that might help. So if you want to kind of get these little things every once in a while and updates on what I'm doing, please uh, sign up for my, my space claiming subscription at my website. Oh. <laughs> you got it now. I love the, I love the, the, the name of the group is space claimers. Yeah, I just love it. I'm like, it's a community of space claiming badass women. There you go. I like that. Well, this has truly (laughs) been a delight and I do appreciate you. Hey guys, you know what the ending is always about. If you like it, share it. If you didn't like it, share it because I promise it will start a conversation that will change lives and help you go deeper on these thoughts that we've presented here every, every single day. I'm always amazed by the wonderful people and the generosity of my guests. As Eliza has said, she really does like to connect with you and answer your questions. She is a giver from her heart. It is not a, you know, it's not anything to get back in return. I found that she has been open and warm and I do encourage you. Her LinkedIn profile will be attached to those show notes so that you can connect with her there. And as always, this is a wrap. Talk to you next time. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.